Welcome to Health Hackers episode 18. I'm Gemma Evans. I'm a journalist here in the UK and this is my series devoted to getting inside the minds of pioneering figures in health. My guest today is one of America's leading medical figures, Dr. Eric Topol. He's an eminent cardiologist, geneticist and digital medicine researcher who's authored two best-selling books about the future of medicine with another one on the way. His influence and expertise has also reached the UK. Eric has been doing a review for the NHS looking at how to prepare staff to deliver a more digital future, the kind where doctors, nurses and patients could be using artificial intelligence, robotics, genomics and digital medicine. Over the next 30 minutes, Eric is with us to discuss all of that and the ways in which something called high definition medicine tailored to each of us could revolutionize the way we manage illness. As you can imagine, we have lots to discuss. Eric, thank you for being here. It's great to be able to talk to you. Um, I presented Sky News's weekly technology show for six years, so health tech is an absolute passion of mine. I'm really keen to know what made you become so interested in the future of medicine, because you kind of diverted from your path a bit as a cardiologist. Oh, well, not really, Jim. Uh, it was, it's been kind of a work in progress for decades. Uh, you know, back in, in college, I was studying genetics, and that was kind of a way to understand human beings. And then I, over the years, just added more ways that as, as we progressed with things like sensors uh, and smartphones and our digital infrastructure. So it was a natural thing. And whereas a lot of times you see people that focus just on one thing to understand uh, people, like their genomes or their scans, but the whole idea was we need all this stuff to really understand people and do much better job in, in promoting health, pre preventing uh, disease. So that, that's really been the goal all along. And the cardiology has been a fun area because it's been one that's been particularly um, with great momentum over the, over the years. But all areas of medicine need improvement. We still have lots of errors and inefficiency and waste and we, we also you know, miss a lot of the care in healthcare, the, the human side. So we got a long ways to go to get it where it ought to be. And your expertise now is really growing with the specifically health technology, isn't it? So how, how long have you been specializing in this digital health area? Well, it got, it got into high gear back uh, 12 years ago when I came to Scripps. And here at Scripps Research, we're centered in the wireless capital of the world, San Diego. And so there's hundreds of wireless companies, one of the largest one in the world, Qualcomm is here. So it was just ideal. It's like being in a candy shop because there's so much great technology right here. Uh, and now, of course, it's moving to 5G and all these wireless medical. Uh, the very first internet dedicated medical company was here. So it was a high time, you know, just a very fortuitous that, uh, you know, be at a, a great research institute in a hub for digital uh, technology. How do you fit it all in? Because you've, you've published your books, you're doing this research, you're still seeing patients, because I've seen you complain on Twitter that you spend a lot of your time de-prescribing and having patients avoid procedures and tests that are being ordered unnecessarily. So how do you fit everything in? Well, it's, I, I need a lot of stimulation. I'm kind of, <laughs> I get bored very easily. So this is how I thrive with all kinds of things to do and people to work with. I'm, you know, I just feel really lucky. And I, I, didn't, I wouldn't do well if I 
didn't have all these things to keep my mind uh, going. I it just, uh, it's always looking for more ideas and things to, to, to fix while we have the opportunity to do that. So let's talk about high definition medicine. Now, the first time I'd heard that term was when I was reading up on you. And this is something that you are big on. So is it the same as individualized medicine? Talk us through in a kind of guide for dummies way, what high definition medicine means. Well, it, it really is just that we can understand each human being at our unprecedented level. So, you know, in the way we used to practice and still do largely is we treat everybody the same. And so the terms personalized and precision, individualized, these are all terms that have come about because we know better than that. We shouldn't just do screening on all people for a condition because that's really stupid and wasteful and it induces lots of false positives and harm. So that's just one example, but it's also the way we prescribe medicines, the way we make diagnoses. Everything in medicine has been very much uh, a lack of any bespoke, tailored approach. Now, the reason why I prefer individualized is because it has a double entendre. One is that we learn everything possible about the individual. And the second is that we empower the individual who has the most vested interest in their care, or should be, uh, to drive their care more, to have much more influence. Uh, so that's why I like that term, even though we are very much involved with this precision medicine initiative in the U.S. Uh, and then high definition is referring to all the different means, every layer of ways to define a human being. So not just our, our demographics and our, our background, our environment, but also every layer of biology. DNA, RNA, proteins, metabolites, um, you know, our uh, microbiome. Then the physiology through sensors, which we can do with wearable sensors, almost any part of the body now. Uh, and then, uh, of course, um, you've got anatomy through scans. So if we could do all these things as needed throughout one's lifetime and use all that data to define a human being's medical essence, I, I believe we can do a much better job in keeping people healthy in the years ahead. And that's really our main aspiration. When I think about uh, some of the most burdensome costs on healthcare right now, so like um, obesity, diabetes, smoking, how, how can high definition medicine help tackle those problems? Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, we don't understand for each person why they got that problem. So it turns out, you know, some people's obesity is related to uh, genetic uh, issues, that they have genome alterations, and there may be specific pathways, metabolic pathways. Other people, it could be their gut microbiome, and in the future, we'll have ways to manipulate microbiome. It isn't all just that people eat too much. You know, that's not this. That's not this. And so that's just for overweight and obesity. But for each thing, uh, you you name the condition. Like diabetes, it's probably twenty different conditions that are actually uh, explain diabetes. And eventually, we're going to be able to drill down and come up with much better ways. So, diabetes is a mess today. For type 2 diabetes, the common form, there's 15, 15 classes of drugs. 
and nobody knows how to use them. And many of these classes are, are very expensive. And so we, there's no method to the madness. And just giving out all these drugs willy-nilly, not matching up the, the deep-rooted problem of the person with the right medication, and ideally the prevention of the diabetes. So we can get much smarter. We will get much smarter. And we're right at this inflection point because we have tools now that we didn't have before. They're very new. They're very exciting. Uh, they have to be used judiciously, not in a promiscuous way, but I do think ultimately we will go to a much higher tier of um, prevention and better treatment. So with the tools you mentioned there, can you give us some examples of the kind of stuff that you're, you're looking at? Are you developing any of this or are you kind of a consultant and someone to communicate with for the companies that are working on this stuff? Well, we do both, but mainly we are uh, the test grounds the validation center for a lot of technology. So it could be a smartphone app. But for example, we've developed a, a pregnancy smartphone app so we can deal with maternal mortality, which is a big problem in the US. And uh, on the other hand, we, and we've done genomic apps that we've developed here to give people their heart disease risk score to know whether they should take a statin or not. So we, the, the statins are like in the water supply. We don't need to do that. We need to use them in the right people who are at risk and who will benefit. So uh, those are things we developed, but then we also test lots of different things like blood pressure sensors, uh, a watch, or uh, a, uh, different ways to monitor blood pressure continuously, um, and glucose and all these other sensors, cardiogram, heart rhythm. Sleep. So we we try to figure out are these sensors uh, or genetics or scans uh, how do, how are they going to work in the real world in, in scale how are they going to make medicine more efficient and more cost effective and um, better outcomes for people those are the sorts of things that we do a lot of. Would a lot of the apps or devices be? preventative because i know you mentioned prevention there would would some of them be like ways of detecting a cancer cell before you get any kind of symptom uh is there anything like that in the pipeline it's being looked at we're looking at it too which is now we could find circulating tumor dna uh in a tube of blood before anyone would know they had cancer before it was on a scan and we've seen that, in fact, in some healthy women who are pregnant, where they were having their so-called NIPT, the non-invasive prenatal test, to see about their, their fetus, their baby uh, that they're incubating. And then they find out, oh my gosh, they have uh, a tumor DNA also in their plasma. And so we have seen several women, uh, rare, but healthy people where cancer was diagnosed completely unsuspected. And so there is a chance in the future that we'll, by monitoring people, let's say who are at high risk once a year or every six months with a tube of blood, we'll be able to pick up cancer um, well before it, it grew, well before it could possibly have spread. So that's in the pipeline. It's not a, real, it's not a reality yet, but we have some ideas uh, from data, limited, rare patients, people, so one of the problems though, Jim, is what if we start doing these tests and we find out that 
um, if you do it again, a few months later, the person is basically able to conquer the cancer, the tumor DNA, that it no longer appears. So we, are, we may learn that people's housekeeping uh, ability in their body to squash cancer uh, is also uh, a part of the story that we don't know enough about just yet. That's fascinating. And then you'll want to look at what is it about their lifestyle, perhaps, that's squashed that cancer by a few weeks' time and then hook onto that. What about um, robotics? Where can you see this becoming an advantage in healthcare and wellness in the future? Well, to me, robotics is really just artificial intelligence with, with hardware. So uh, I think it has tremendous opportunities going forward. Uh, and I, I think that I kind of look at it all in one AI world. And to me, that's the most exciting future of medicine because what we're seeing now is a seismic data uh, generation, people generating more of their own data at multiple layers of data. Uh, and then we, up till recently, we didn't have a way to process it. We didn't have a way to make, uh, uh, understand it and extract the juice, the distillate. Now we do. So now with deep learning, uh, whether it's through just the software or whether it's with a robot there, a chat bot, whatever, we are moving in a world that um, is going to re rely on algorithms more than ever before to make things um, uh, work. That is, to de deal with massive data sets, the likes of which we've never really had to deal with before. Do you think that the, the entire journey, if you like, of getting ill is going to change soon? So like from the because of the technology influence. So from the start, from the moment you start feeling sick at home, there could be a, diagnosis, a diagnostic tool on our smartphone, for example, and then we could call up a doctor on Skype or something better. Do, it, can you see that kind of process getting easier and more streamlined and obviously cheaper as well, less, less of a cost on the healthcare service? Right. No, definitely. I mean, telemedicine, whether it's through Skype or other video, is going to become increasingly popular and it, is, it decreases expense in many ways because it doesn't rely on buildings and resources and all sorts of other uh, expenses. Uh, it's part of the story, though. Today is just a video chat, but tomorrow it'll be a data exchange platform. So if you have a skin rash, you could take a picture, you have an algorithmic cloud interpretation, and you'd be talking to your doctor through a quick uh, consult, uh, through a video link as to what do I do with this, this uh, data, this, this result. Or it could be a lab test, and, and in the years ahead, you'll be doing your own lab test through your smartphone uh, for routine blood tests. So a lot of the data uh, exchange will become a part of the person who's willing to generate their data, get the answer even before talking to their doctor, and now what do I do, getting guidance. So that's gonna make the whole thing more streamlined, the workflow story, uh, should make it also less expensive. And what I'm trying to push for really hard is to get back the time, the gift of time, so that when patients and doctors, clinicians come together, that they'll actually have a lot more um, uh, valued uh, time to communicate, to bond, to trust, the presence, all these good features that we don't have enough of today. 
And that, I think, is really the outgrowth of the era, potentially, of AI if we set our, our minds uh, for it. Yeah, just a note on the kind of Skype idea, but taking it a step further into augmented reality, say, I just remembered I filmed a piece in a London hospital once where I was filming with the surgeon who was carrying out an operation, but he was being guided by another surgeon who was in another hospital uh, miles away, watching it on a screen and through the power of augmented reality was able to, to guide this other surgeon. So it was, it was like a, it was a remote operation. Um, do you have faith in that kind of technology? Could we see that becoming a bit more prevalent sooner? Or are we still years off that being really kind of fail safe? Well, no, I think we already have seen like robotic surgery at a distance where uh, experienced surgeons can help uh, provide uh, robotic assistance um, from anywhere, wherever there's a, a broadband internet connection. So, no, we'll see more of that. But uh, what we don't have uh, is uh, the idea that, you know, robots are going to do surgery themselves. I mean, we're not looking at that. Uh, we're not looking at robots uh the doctors either. What we're looking really at is, um, you know, better ways to deal with information than we do today and much better, deeper information. So, you know, when a person has surgery today, they, all their data from when they were, since they were born or even before they were born through the moment in life when they're going to have this operation, it often isn't known. And much more we should know about each person before we do an operation and also after the procedure. So this sort of continuum, the what we call long data, is really important too. Uh, it's, it's, we tend to get a little carried away with the technology and not um, give enough priority to the data and information itself. And that information would be stuff going back from the person's birth that had been tracked on a smartphone, his genomic type, his microbiome state, before he went into the op operation, just everything, all this data that could potentially be useful for the people doing the operation. Exactly, you know, and I, we haven't been doing that. And, you know, for example, just last week, there was this report about IVF babies having um, a, a blood vessel issues and high blood pressure. Well, that's a little uh, surprised because we've had IVF babies for 40 years now we have millions of babies born from in vitro fertilization, but we never really studied this carefully because we didn't go back in time when, when people were getting older as to were they one of the 3% who were born through IVF or one of the, you know, born through natural means. So we have a lot to learn because we don't focus on this long, long view of each person. And so talk to me a little bit about the review you're doing for the NHS. So yeah, that's, yeah. Sure. That's been a lot of fun. Um, I've gotten to meet and work with a phenomenal group of people spanning every uh, discipline you can imagine um, in the UK. So we have, you know, of course, many uh, physicians and scientists, engineers, economists, nurses, uh, ethicists, uh, roboticists. I mean, just, uh, just an amazing cadre of people who are very enthusiastic about taking the NHS to new heights and incorporating these tools. So all, I'm just basically like a coach and I'm trying to um, give some um, uh, input, uh, guidance uh, and bounce off ideas 
And we have very frequent uh, calls uh, almost every week, uh, no less emails seemingly every day, multiple between members or the whole group. And so it's been, a, uh, it's actually been an immersion. It's been consumptive. I've learned a lot about the NHS and about uh, uh, the whole uh, healthcare system uh, in the UK from this. So it's been great. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, even though it's taken over my life. Well, it sounds like it. I wanted to ask you actually, so you must have had to, like you said, familiarize yourself with the way our healthcare system works here in the UK. It's very different to the paid for healthcare plans in the US. I'm really keen to know what your opinion is of the way our NHS works. Does it seem crazy to you that every citizen gets free medical treatment at the point of use because it's so different in the States? I love that actually. That's part <laughs> of why I'm so engaged because I think it's dreadful that we don't have that in the US. It's actually, it's, it's, uh, it's just unexplainable. A dreadful is too nice a word to use. Now, what I learned about the um, NHS is that uh, in the UK, the people have uh, the highest regard for it. That is even above the royal family and the BBC. I mean, it's pretty amazing. You know what the regard is for healthcare in the US? It's like the lowest level possible. So uh, it's a different perspective. What I also love about the experience is that um, you can make a change, you know, if there, there's a will to make things better. And because everyone is in this together, uh, everyone treated, being treated equally, uh, this is the way to do it. Um, and I actually would say the NHS is leading the world in planning all these uh, incorporation of these new technologies. No other country. And there are other countries that appreciate the importance of AI, including China, uh, and France and Canada, other countries. But no country has taken this seriously as to planning the future of healthcare and the workforce implication as uh, the NHS. So it deserves a lot of high regard. That is high praise. Cause you know, in this country, we're used to hearing a lot of bad news about the NHS and it being overstretched and underfunded. And, and like you said, we have huge respect for the people who work on the NHS, um, emergency services, doctors and nurses. Um, when, you've, when you've put your review together, will it be, uh, re will it be recommending uh, things to the people in the NHS workforce? Will it be giving recommendations about how they can implement new technology? Or is it more about guiding them in how to deliver this technology? Well, it's both, really. Uh, it's, there'll be recommendations that are uh, cutting across those areas. Uh, I think the whole idea is um, we have uh, an opportunity to make some pretty uh, big jumps. You know, lots of, we have a, like a top 10 technologies is one area, education and training. Uh, you may know this, Jim, but the UK leads the world in genomics. And it has also, along with that, you know, whether it's the, uh, uh, UK Biobank and Genome England, but it's also done the first rate uh, as far as educating the public and the health professionals in genomics to basically be the world leader. Well, it needs to do that, of course, with AI and digital medicine and robotics. And so that has been a good foray into how to get geared up for this future. We, we're planning a 20-year, you know, like a, 
it's not just next week and next year, but a whole 20 years. It's hard to do that in some respects because, you know, things change so quickly. But, you know, our recommendations are going to be pretty broad, uh, uh, cutting across uh, almost everything you can think of. But especially we're putting a fair amount of energy into what is it going to take for education, training, uh, what workforce kind of reconfiguration is going to be needed to accommodate these jumps uh, and what can we do to really get to the, the, everything is about the patient and the patient is how are they going to be better served? How are we going to promote a better patient doctor relationship and better outcomes for patients, better prevention for patients? So if you think of it from that standpoint, that's, that's what it all kind of grows out from that. Uh, so again, it, every possible way, which way we can advance the, the patient story. I did not know that about the UK leading the way in genomics. And by genomics, um, we're talking about DNA, aren't we? Sequencing. Sequencing. Yes. Uh, so how more than anywhere, any more people than anywhere in the world, and you've had more publications than anyone in the world. You are the world leader without even a question at this point. I need to get more geneticists on the show because this is something we, we haven't covered. This is great. Um, how many years, roughly, do you think it will be until we see the implementation of using big data and using AI in, in all the hospitals across the country? Well, in the kind of ways that we've discussed. If, if uh, the will is maintained and... I think there is, it's there because I'm in touch with the group. Uh, it could happen, you know, pretty readily. It won't happen in every different condition and every person right away. So for example, we talked about diabetes uh, a few minutes ago and it's going to change whereby um, you can take a picture of the food you're going to eat with your phone. It will exactly process, you know, how many carbohydrates, protein, fat content, and you'll have your glucose continuously. Uh, it, you'll, you'll have your microbiome assessed. You'll have a virtual coach. And whether it be your, your Alexa or your smartphone or your avatar, whatever, will talk to you to manage your condition and ideally in the future even prevent the need for taking medications for this. So you're going to see that pretty quickly. And that's just one common condition, and it represents so many others like heart disease, heart arrhythmias, heart failure. We're going to be able to eventually prevent the acute uh, disease, things like seizures, asthma attacks, heart attacks, strokes, because of virtual coaching. And so it won't be for everyone because some people say, I don't want to be coached. I, I, want, to, I, I want to just rely on the doctors. But we need to have each person, if they're willing, take a more active role. That gets you back to that high-definition individualized medicine so that each person we rally to get them to be part of the, part of the, the solution. Yeah, everybody's got to be a bit proactive. You mentioned constant blood glucose monitors there. There's a British startup who've um, just started making, developing a new one which is meant to be well, it sounds like it's getting far more accessible to have a constant blood glucose monitor. I'm actually going to try it out. Or I'm going to meet the team tomorrow because they've developed this app where you can, if you wear it for a couple of weeks, you end up being able to tell which foods you're responding well to and, and not. And when I say response, I mean which ones, if you're responding well, you're not having the 
massive spikes in blood sugar. And then, and then I think their intention is for people to be able to kind of tailor their diets to the foods that they're getting on well with. But there's always that, um, the expectation that the person doing it has to be quite responsible for, for their own health. Everyone has to play a role in kind of looking after themselves. Do you think, uh, there's going to be a lot of resistance going forward or what, what do you think might end up being the biggest barrier to overcome when this kind of technology is getting out there a bit more? Well, the, the barrier has always been changing behavior, changing lifestyle, the willingness for people to, to uh, eat healthier and maintain a, uh, the right weight and being physically active, those things are still going to be important. There's not going to ever be any, as far as I can see, a magic pill to do that, to accomplish those things. So we have to learn how to, uh, you know, nudges and behavioral science is also part of the story. Uh, because just as you were saying, when you use a glucose sensor and you don't have to do finger sticks and you learn what foods lead to spikes and well, you say, well, do I want to change my diet? And, and uh, eat less of those things that are the, the culprits. And some people say, you know, I don't, I, first of all, I didn't want to know, uh, or they'll say, I'm not changing anything. I mean, so we have to get people who are, you know, more willing to be, um, you know, make these changes. And we kiss, it isn't going to work with this kind of paternalistic medicine, whereas, you know, you have to do this. You have to come to get to people subconsciously. We've learned a lot about behavioral science. And maybe you know get managed competitions and getting getting into people's heads more than we've been able to do in the past. But that's still the number one challenge going forward is to to maintain health. It still is going to be part of the person's willingness to to be uh, uh, looking after themselves. Well, all of my health hackers listeners are very health conscious, so they're going to be the army going forwards, fighting, fighting for this. Um, Eric, it's been fascinating talking to you. I'm excited to find out what happens when your report is published next year. Is that right? It should be out early next year. Yeah, it's been fun. Um, yeah, I think the way your work is set to revolutionize our NHS sounds tremendous. And where can people find you on social media? What's your Twitter handle? I'm just Eric Topol at Twitter, and I try to share everything that I think is worth sharing. So it's oftentimes a lot because I read a lot every day. But yeah, and I, I think it's a great way to keep up for me, and hopefully uh, I reciprocate. And your next book, when can we expect it? That's also early uh, in the new year. It's called Deep Medicine, uh, and uh, that'll be a, a deep dive into uh, AI and, and health going forward. It's going to be a good 2019 for you, isn't it? You're going to be busy. Great. Eric, it's been fantastic. Listeners and viewers, if you like this episode of Health Hackers, I would love it if you left me a nice review on iTunes or SoundCloud. And you can follow every episode at healthhackers.uk or on my socials, which is Twitter at Gemma Evans, Instagram at Health Hacker Gemma, and Facebook at Gemma Evans Broadcaster. Until next time on Health Hackers, bye-bye.